Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Hello and welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Napolitano and with me, as always, is Michael Hughes. How you doing, Michael? I'm good, I guess. Uh, okay, uh... I like the confidence. <laughs> so, I mean, the honest answer is that I was expecting that the anxieties of 2020 maybe would die down in 2021, uh, but... That seems not to have happened. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, there's this whole like, oh, you know, 2020 is over. It's going to get better, which I guess, I mean, maybe there's a reversion to the mean, though. I guess it depends where you think the mean is. But like, isn't there another argument that's like, no, things are going to continue to be terrible because of how terrible 2020 was. It's not like, like it, it, set the, it sets the stage for more terribleness, right? Like maybe in, in a couple of obviously some obvious ways, things will be a bit better. But, like, it, it's not promising stuff. Well, I mean, I would have, I, I had hoped that there would be a new presidential administration that had smoothly um, taken office, that there was a promise of a vaccine that would be starting to roll out. There were reasons to think that it's possible we could be in a better state and, and trending towards a better state. <laughs> In some ways. But of course, the theme of our past few episodes has been, holy crap, are we totally screwed? Is, you know, half the country completely insane? And in our attempt to kind of um, assuage the the anxiety, um, we've been looking at previous periods in American history where it seems like um, there's been political hysteria. People have gone crazy and we've been looking at the Red Scare's. In particular, and last time we talked about what we called the first Red Scare, just after World War One, which was driven by conflicts between labor and business, and also the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks. Uh, and we said that kind of, you know, died down in the twenties. Um, but for this episode, we wanted to talk about what I think most people think of when they hear the Red Scare, which is the McCarthy era and the era leading up to the McCarthy area. Cause as we'll, as we'll see, like there's really, I mean, there's, there's commonalities of course, but there's different forces at play in the second red scare compared to the first one. We were hoping to, that by looking at the second red scare, we could also maybe learn a bit more about the current situation in part because those forces at play, as you say, are somewhat different, but in a lot of ways, the situation is analogous to our present situation. So by looking at the second Red Scare, I think there's some hope that we can learn about the kind of the role of um, public trust in institutions um, and the kind of epistemic um, factors that lead the public to go hysteric, to become hysterical, right, to subscribe to conspiracy theories. Uh and my, my hope is that as we're looking at the this second Red Scare, we will come to have some appreciation for ways that uh, the hysteria might die down or be brought to an end or at least moderated or mitigated to some degree. Yeah, I mean, because the obvious concern is that, 
you know, I, it doesn't seem like a situation like this has occurred in our lifetime. So there's a concern that like, holy crap, this is completely new and we're doomed. And the hope, of course, was that, well, maybe this isn't new. Maybe we have been in similar situations and those um, kinds of scenarios came to an end and there was a return to some level of sanity. So maybe we don't have to worry so much. On the other hand, that's a little too quick, right? And so we're going to be exploring the extent to which you can actually make those historical analogies. And, you know, we need to ask whether there are crucial differences this time around that maybe should make us more or less optimistic. Right. And, I mean, to give away the ending in some ways, I mean, one of the things that one one central question will be, uh, is there the kind of uh, public trust in institutions today that existed at that time, which allowed for the uh, McCarthy era to be brought to an end. And I mean, in some ways you can kind of guess the answer. Um, You just play the little game with yourself. What institutions does the public trust? Answer. Hang on. I'm thinking about it. Ah, he's dead. Bob Ross. I was trying to think of some universally beloved figure. I think Bob Ross is all we have. Oh. But, of course, he's no longer with us. Um, Mr. Rogers. That would have been... Uh, that's even older. Fewer people know. What? Yeah. Are you... What are you talking about? There was this... There, there's the um, film about him that was super popular with Tom Hanks. When? A few years ago. Okay, I'm just saying, if you ask young people, like oh, well. college age and younger, they'll know who Bob Ross is, but they won't know who Mr. Rogers is. How would they know who Bob Ross is? Because Bob Ross had a huge resurgence on YouTube. Like, he has, his <laughs> videos are insanely popular. <laughs> and Twitch. Like, all the streaming, <laughs> video streaming sites. All right, I feel out of touch and old, if that's true. <laughs> yeah. Worth, worth a watch, by the way. Great, great content. Anyways. Um... <laughs> so... I mean, one thing that we should say a little bit more about is what kind of conspiracy theories we are currently concerned with. I mean, presumably our audience is aware of what is happening with respect to the president of the United States claiming that widespread election fraud um, occurred and that he ultimately won the election and that if our institutions work correctly, he's claimed that he should be still be the president of the United States after for the next four years. And of course, it's recently been discovered that Trump called the Georgia's secretary of state to pressure him to change the election results in Georgia, which, by the way, like, you know, wouldn't have been enough for Trump to win. Um, so those efforts are still ongoing. There are some Republican Congress people that have uh, are, are basically still kind of an open rebellion with respect to Joe Biden's win. Not a ton, but a handful. Eleven. <laughs> yep. I guess it, can you fit 11 in your hands? I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't even want to try. Uh, and the vice president my, oh, is another important player in this, right? That there there is an attempt um, within the Senate, right, to refuse to certify the Electoral College results um, and to sort of push for i don't know i honestly what their end game is who knows as uh, plenty of people on twitter have pointed out uh one fun fact is that if they're successful 
Nancy Pelosi will be acting president until they get their shit together and certify the electoral <laughs> college. Uh, yep. So go ahead. <laughs> so that's the present day. Yeah, obviously we're sort of obliquely referring to like, it's, you know, everyone should know. Right. We can just and, refer and, to it as the shit. <laughs> and, and to be clear about our own concerns, it's not as though uh, we are actually concerned that, uh, the Senate will fail to certify the results or that Trump won't leave office. At the very least, the probability of that is incredibly low. And that's not the primary concern. The primary concern is the fact that there is nearly a majority of Americans who subscribe to the kind of conspiracy theories that the president is uh, utilizing to justify this position that they ought not certify the results. And that's really the more that's that's the deeper concern is just that uh, the citizenry has become, as we've said in previous episode, episodes, epistemically deranged. And there's a question of whether or not we can restore uh, some sense of reality in the, you know, in public trust in, in institutions like our democratic elections. Right. And so thought, okay, well, um, Joseph McCarthy is kind of a similar kind of character who was quite popular at his height and was pushing the line that basically the government was being controlled by communists, infiltrated and controlled by communists. Uh, and he, again, he was quite popular personally. He's sort of similar to Trump, as we'll talk about. Um, and yet he failed and, you know, he was... Uh, uh, ultimately ruined kind of shortly after the height of his fame and things kind of returned back to normal-ish. And so that's kind of the, the parallel we want to explore. At the, at the very least, the because of McCarthy's disgrace, the um, the kind of conspiracy theories that he was associated with came to have a uh, much worse reputation and uh, were... McCarthy himself came to be, you know, disdained by the overwhelming majority of the public by the end of his career, right? And anything analogous to that would seem like we have possibly restored some degree of epistemic sanity if the electorate could get there. Okay, so let's dive into the history then. So last time we left off in sort of the 1920s after the first Red Scare and we said, you know, that kind of came to an end because the, the courts put an end to this sort of overt political persecution. Um, but then also there was a failure of the labor movement and the labor, uh, you know, union membership declined and labor organizing declined through the 20s. And that sort of removed the fuel for the Red Scare. Um, so why don't we pick it up there? Right. So that's kind so, of <laughs> all this lays the groundwork for the next uh, Red Scares. Right. So just to be clear about the sort of the dates here. So the Red Scare kind of comes to an end in the very early 20s, somewhere around between 21 and 1921 and 1923. And then you have, you know, the booming 20s and the labor movement sort of declining from about 23 to uh, 1929, we cited all those statistics. And then, of course, 1929 is a pretty uh, in significant year in American history. Uh, 
This is when the you know stock market crashes and um, sets off the Great Depression, which you know at least from like 1929 to 1938 is just a period of um, you know stag- a stagnant economy, you know you know massive uh, material deprivation for many in the country. Obviously, the conditions at that time were such that the labor movement really had no legs to stand on. Right, workers were so desperate for jobs. the The supply demand curve was such that labor simply didn't have any real leverage, um, and business itself was actually suffering at this time. And so, you know, the the GDP was declining or stagnating f- throughout this period, um, and there isn't really any kind of labor movement. But there also isn't any kind of changes in the economy to suggest that it's going to bounce back. And so really our story begins, so you have the Great Depression. The story really begins for the next, what some historians call the Little Red Scare in 1938. So the the tanking of the economy and the apparent, the fact that there didn't seem to be any end in sight, whereas previously, so it was a kind of accepted fact, because it still is that sort of capitalist markets kind of are cyclical and they have boom and bust periods. And they kind of, there's a belief that they'd worked themselves out. And this time it did not appear that that was going to happen. So that's, this sets the stage for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's campaign and his, uh, and his presidency. And of course, what he's probably, well, one of the things most famous for is uh, the set of policies known as the New Deal. Right. So the FDR campaigns on a kind of New Deal program where he basically says, look, the economy is not going to come out of this on its own. The federal government has a significant role to play in helping to improve conditions. I mean, the big problem was that, you know, farmers might be able to produce goods, but they didn't have anybody to sell them to. Um, You know, businesses might have the capacity for production, but again, they didn't have anybody to sell anything to. And so the economy in part was stagnating due to an absence of demand, or at least this is kind of the Keynesian explanation for it. Yes. And so it's worth just emphasizing, right? It's it's not as though this was because of natural causes, like widespread famine or something like that, right? It seems to be a failure of the organization of the economy and markets. Right. And, and this is the... Uh, The position that the FDR administration takes is that, look, unless the federal government steps in and helps to regulate and create the conditions for economic growth, we are just going to continue to be in this perpetual state of stagnation, right? And during this period, around 38, you have the establishment of the Social Security Administration. Um, You have welfare and works programs implemented. Uh, You have significant um, labor protection laws that are passed. Uh, The National Labor Relations Act, for example, comes into existence, which guarantees unions the rights to negotiate and requires businesses to to actually negotiate with unions and recognize union rights. Um, This is a period where the federal government comes to play a much more significant role in terms of uh, providing a social safety net, which it really didn't do at, up until this point, um, and actually really changed the way that the federal government related to business and labor conflicts. This is something that uh, Jonathan Michaels emphasizes in his chapter on the New Deal in his book, uh, McCarthyism, The Realities, The Delusions. And basically what he points out is the fact that 
Up until this point in American history, the government did get involved in labor negotiations and disputes between business and labor, but almost exclusively up until this point, when the government got involved, it did so on behalf of business, right? So the police, militias, the National Guard were utilized to break strikes at various points in American history. And these are things that we uh, went through in the, over the last episode. But what's fundamentally different at this point is that with the National Labor Relations Act and with the committees that come out of the New Deal programs, there are various congressional committees to recognize labor relations disputes on behalf of labor and unions as opposed to businesses. Okay, so so in effect, there's there's two threats to business and the wealthy. One is just the existence of the uh, safety nets in the welfare system, which means higher taxes on the wealthy because they're um, funded by those taxes. But then also, as you say, the government actually seeming to take the side of labor in direct conflicts between labor and business. And there were a couple of high-profile cases where, in the past, the government would have stepped in on the side of business to, say, break strikes. Uh, And there were a couple of high-profile cases where the government very clearly stood back and, in fact, um, seemed to side with with labor. Right. So there there were various high-profile cases. And really, there was just a lot more sort of... uh labor activity from the 1930s on as we as we'll talk about during this red scare period labor actually starts to engage in more aggressive strategies to promote um you know union interests um and they start doing things like uh having sit down strikes which are a more aggressive form of striking than had existed in the past right where the Historically, when uh, workers would go on strike, you know, maybe they they refuse to go to work and they protest. They're not then seizing the means of production, right? They're not like taking control of the means of production from business in a way that would actually prevent businesses to utilize the means of production with other workers. And of course, business at the time thought of this as a, you know, uh, a vile violation of their um, property rights, right? Because they own the means of production and they weren't being allowed to use it because of the manner in which these strikes were occurring. And so business goes on this offensive saying like, look, the FDR administration and these in the Labor Relations Act and uh, this general new um, approach that the government is taking towards strikes where it's kind of if if it's not taking the side of labor if it's just sitting sitting out the conflict right and just refusing to get involved even that is itself kind of a a repudiation of its obligation to protect the property rights of business right and so around this time a, a business sort of rhetorical strategy coalesces around the idea that this approach that the government was taking to labor relations ultimately is a form of anti-capitalism, right? And of course, yep. they just say this is either communism or puts us on the road to communism. Yeah, I, I want to spend a little bit of time here because this is interesting. Um, Michael's kinds of kind of goes over the 
um, the various rhetorical moves made by conservatives against FDR and FDR's replies, and they really parallel sort of the exact same arguments that are made today between conservatives and and progressives. So one of them, as you noted, is uh, well, I mean, I guess the the overarching criticism, as you said, is FDR, and this is where you know we, the the Red Scare kind of valence comes in, um, is undermining or or destroying capitalism and um so he must be he must be advancing communism whereas fdr's reply in effect is <laughs> correctly as he points out i mean he's clearly he's not a communist and so his reply is to say no listen homie i'm trying to save capitalism <laughs> because if you don't have the like uh you know a safety net or basically if the majority of people are in terrible conditions that situation is what you need or is is the one that's likely to lead to an actual revolt that does end capitalism. So you need to do something to make people's lives better so that you don't have an end of capitalism. Right. So, I mean, he he's effectively just looking back to the to 1917 and the Russian Revolution and the various revolutions that happened after that and noting that the places around the globe where governments were being overthrown, or in the case of Russia, monarchies being overthrown and replaced with communism, those were places that were suffering from extreme like famine, deprivation, right? Russia's in a state of famine around 1917 when this happens. And FDR is just saying, look, it's those conditions that give rise to the revolution. And if you want to stave off the revolution and continue to have a profit-based economy and not have, you know, the, the peasants seize the, the um, means of production and control that for themselves, then you need to prevent those conditions from arising. Yeah, which seems right. I mean, I guess it's something like pointed out by Locke and Rawls, for instance. Like the, the greatest sources of instability, if you want there to be revolution revolt, People need to be miserable. There needs to be widespread injustice, right? I mean, so FDR is trying to focus on the conditions that lead to revolt, but conservatives and business are replying by saying, no, uh, your your attempts to save capitalism actually just end it. And, and they have a couple of other arguments that are literally the exact same arguments that are still made today. So um, Hoover is president before FDR. And according to Michaels, he wins, FDR wins in part because Hoover's line was, and this should sound familiar, giving people aid, even when they're starving, makes them dependent. So, and I just think of Paul Ryan, we probably had this clip of Paul Ryan earlier on some earlier uh, podcast episode where he says, you know, there's this line that, yes, you want to give people opportunity, but giving people handouts, right, is the term makes them dependent and actually undermines them because it makes them dependent and prevents them from exercising their own initiative, which is insane. (laughs) But it's the same kind of line that was given then, still given today in certain contexts. Right. And and in some ways, in this period, it's even more insane than it is today, given the fact that uh, the unemployment rate was so astronomically high that it's like the assumption, and this was one of the things that like Ford repeats, uh, that if you want a job, you could, of course, find a job, right? During a time where, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a historically high unemployment rate, 
right? Like the idea that people are simply not taking the initiative to find jobs. I mean, why, it, while people are literally packs of people, they, they talk about like packs of young men roaming the country, just trying to find any job possible. Um, that didn't qualify as taking the initiative. Uh, yeah, clearly not. So th- at this point, it's, it's clearly a kind of insane rhetorical move um, that, you know, as you know, is analogous to the one is is given today. Yeah. Uh, one of the things Michael's notes too is, which I think is still kind of prominent today, is this idea of kind of economic independence and self-sufficiency. And FDR is kind of saying, no, we need to work together, <laughs> right? There is kind of a collective spirit, right? It's a welfare programs in general, um, that if you think that somehow you know, everyone needs to be independent and self-sufficient, which just sounds insane to me in a, you know, a capitalist system with the division of labor and all that. Um, anyways, this is this is one of the myths that kind of underlies this response. And the other reply that FDR makes to this particular argument, which you also see in like progressives, I think Sanders kind of makes this argument as well, is the people who come to the government for aid typically are big business, right? When things go bad, they're the ones that are the first in Washington asking for special benefits or advantages or whatever else. So there's a kind of hypocrisy charge there as well. I guess one other move I'll I'll mention from FDR rhetorically here is, right, so there's this concern from conservatives that the government is overstepping its bounds and, and stepping beyond its legitimate function by intervening in the economy and limiting people's economic freedom in a sense and he has two responses here one is a response we've already talked about when we talked about libertarianism much earlier in the series which is that it's a question of how you conceive of freedom right on the one hand by having regulations and welfare programs by taxing people and the like the government is engaging in a kind of coercion um, and preventing people from participating in certain economic transactions on the other hand he, as he points out, it's sensible to have a more positive sense of freedom where you have to ask, what is a person's options? And if a person is desperate, right, that person is not free. Someone who's desperate, they either have to take some crappy job for a, you know, a barely subsistence wage or starve, doesn't have a real choice there, right? And so he says what we need to do is improve economic conditions for people so that they have real choices, and if you care about freedom, that's what you do. Yeah. One, one thing that, that is worth noting is that we've actually talked about this notion of um, positive liberty in the context of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s critiques of capitalism, right? There's, there's a sense in which what he's saying there is very much along the lines of the quotes that we had from King, right? Which is just that... Uh, the, the starving or impoverished person really has no freedom uh, at all, right? And there's a sense in which this actually is just kind of the precursor to that kind of moral critique of capitalism. It's the, the progressive thought. Uh, there's a connectivity in progressive thought from FDR all the way through King and his critique, which, again, we've it's worth going back and listening to those episodes. We talk about that in more detail. Yeah, and, and there's also the fact that you know, he makes the argument that, like, look, this is a democracy, so we are free to impose those conditions on ourselves. It's not, you know, 
this gets a little fuzzy, but it's not as though the government is a completely, or it's not meant to be a completely separate entity, right? It's supposed to be an expression of the will of the people. Um, so you can, you're free to Im- impose on yourself democratically if you'd like. We don't need to go into that in depth, I don't think. No, but but I mean, I, I think it is at the same at the same time. This is it's useful to point out that there really is this kind of fundamental disagreement about um, the role of our democratic institution, the legitimate exercise of power within democratic institutions, and this becomes a this is at the fore of this disagreement between FDR and conservatives at the time, right? It really is a question of whether or not, whether or not. Uh, there are sort of inherent limits on the legitimate exercise of democratic institutions. And it's clear that conservatives at this time take this very strong libertarian line that really any exercise of government that's unnecessary threatens liberty and freedom, as opposed to the FDR line, which is that actually by creating the conditions under which more people can thrive, you can actually expand the positive liberty of more people. Uh, and I do, I mean, like, we don't need to go into more detail, but I do think it's it's important that there's a sense in which this debate that still is at the heart of progressive versus um, libertarian politics. Absolutely, yeah. Comes into, you know, focus around the time of the FDR administration. Yep. As, as the as yeah as the way the way michael's puts it is like this the fdr the new deal really did represent a new kind of pact between the government and the people um and really it's over the the fight is over the legitimacy of that pact started by framing it this way right the conservatives saw no middle fdr sees himself as finding a finding a kind of middle ground between capitalism and communism it's not even that right it's literally just trying to save capitalism and in fact the socialists of the time the communists of the time were like the hell are you talking about this isn't communism (laughs) right Right? they were they referred to it sort of derisively as state capitalism um i i do wonder right so part of it there there's two interpretations or two different lines of the conservative attack which is the new deal policies just are communism the other one is that they will inevitably lead to communism and i actually wonder here if like marx and engels and communists are partly responsible for this because they thought the you know the increase in, in workers rights uh would sort of be the first step towards or they thought that the collapse of capitalism was inevitable right and so they kind of thought there was a slippery slope uh, this inevitability to it. And so in some ways you could see conservatives as picking up on that and being like, Oh my God, this is happening. We have to stop it. Yeah. I don't know. Cause the, the other take is like, uh, I don't know if it's fair to blame Marx and Engels. Cause part of the response is like, uh, or they're, uh, that they, they should have thought that it wouldn't matter because it was going to collapse regardless of what FDR did. Right. That there's a sense of which what they, what they predicted is that, the tensions within the capitalist economy that led to the boom and bust cycles would ultimately lead to the economy, you know, stagnating and leading to mass inequality and all that good stuff that would lead to revolution. And 
it wouldn't matter what the government did, they wouldn't be able to prevent that. And so they ought to have thought like, huh, eh, if you really, if you, you find the Marx-Engel lines compelling, you ought to think, eh, well, let's, why worry about FDRs and his policies? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, and so what they got wrong is the fact that actually you, you know, by regulating itself and by imposing these protections for workers, you could actually save uh, capitalist economies from the kind of tensions that they thought were inevitable. Yeah. Which, by the way, this like saving capitalism kind of interpretation of FDR is also surely the correct interpretation of people like just modern progressives like Ralph Nader or Bernie Sanders. They're not communists. They're not. I, mean, I don't know what the hell you mean by socialism, but uh, they're trying to save capitalism, right? <laughs> they're trying to make it a little bit nicer and, and preventing uh, serious conflict as a result of lack of regulation and, and lack of safety nets. Right. Again, it's a profit-based. Nobody in this neighborhood is is arguing for the state to own the means of production um, or to. Remove Except the in very incentive. limited domains, like perhaps health insurance, and yeah, yeah, sometimes they are sometimes for that. Yeah, <laughs> there are these like very specific instances of having a but even, mildly mixed right. economy, right? Yeah, right. But e- even then, a lot of the times, it's more like owning the insurance uh, sort of domain as opposed to the actual means of production uh but the what, computers that you use to file insurance claims michael are <laughs> and the pencils that people read <laughs> okay so so this is the rhetoric uh sort of anti new deal conservative rhetoric um that partly constitutes or fuels what we're calling a little red scare <laughs> as opposed to the first big red scare and the mccarthy red scare so there's there's this kind of anti New Deal, red baity atmosphere, political atmosphere at the time, right? So yeah, so from like 1938 to 1941 is really sort of the period we're talking about where there is a significant amount of government intervention on behalf of labor. Um, there are certain congressional committees like the La Follette. I'm sure that I've butchered that egregiously. No, I think I think that's right. That that's the first time I've ever gotten one of those right. In and also, let me just pause and say, like, a lot of butchers do really nice work. And it's a little bit unfair to them, I think, that that word means that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the other industry. Mangles. I can... Mangle. I don't know. There Maybe there are. Do you want to really? A like... good butcher does not mangle. What about the manglers of the world? Well, they mangle. I'm just saying there's an you say they to... don't. Yeah, okay. Butchery. Anyway. <laughs> so so there there are con- congressional committees like the Law of Follett com- Committee that are actually working on behalf of labor. And they do uh, develop some sort of close relationships with organizations like the CIO, um, which was uh, one of the major sort of organized labor groups that happened to eventually be sort of communist controlled. At, at the very least, like a fourth of the shops that belong to the CIO are communist controlled. So there's this like, during this period, there is this kind of loose relationship between some of these committees that do connect them to, you know, uh, 
the Communist Party activity in the U.S. They're not themselves acting as on behalf of communism or anything, but you you have these kinds of relationships that are right. And so, forming. just to clarify, um, com- members of the Communist Party are still very small in number. There's something like, if I remember the numbers, maybe uh, eight to ten percent of the total union membership, but they disproportionately had leadership roles. Right. Um, they were they tended to be very good at organizing and were willing to take bigger risks. And, and other yeah, things. it's not just Michael's. Every source I've read was basically yep. like quoting people who uh, had founded like the newspaper guild, the founder of the newspaper guild is just like, yeah, of course that we're going to try to promote communist organizers. They're the most committed and they actually do the most on behalf of the people they represent. And so, yes, we um, embrace them insofar as they could actually help promote labor interests. They, you know, and a lot of them were clear that that doesn't mean that they actually embraced, they intended to embrace communism, but rather just the, they accepted that they could do work on their behalf. Right. Um, nevertheless, those kinds of relationships give rise to a kind of paranoia during this time of, you know, the FDR administration on the one hand is very liberal and it's left leaning and progressive. Um, and through this kind of vague and loose associative thinking, um, people were willing to say, look, they are communists just in virtue of that. And then on top of that, there were actual communists that they had loose relationships to, or at the very least, the New Deal programs had some loose relationships to and, and various labor groups uh, like the CIO, um, you know, promoted Communist Party members um, to leadership positions. All of this together kind of creates a paranoia during this period. And there's a congressional committee that's intended to try to counteract the communist influence in the country. And this is called the, the Dyes Committee, named after Martin Dyes, um, who was a uh, Democrat who regarded himself as an enemy of the FDR administration. And so his committee is sort of the precursor to the one that's, you know, famous uh, during the McCarthy era, the, the HUAC Committee. The House Un-American Activities Committee. Committee, yes. right. It, it's basically sort of looking for... Um, uh, Un-American an- activities. <laughs> right. Look, the, claim, the claim is that it's looking for, you know, subversion of the yeah, American yeah, system. Yeah. Um, and the, the Dice Committee sort of establishes a lot of the... During this, like, Little Red Scare, it establishes a lot of the um, sort of tactics that are going to become prominent during the Big Red Scare, right? The one that occurs... Uh, from like 1946 to 1954, where McCarthy is, you know, at the center of it. And basically what the, the committee does, very much similar to what we saw during sort of 1919 to 1921, um, it, it investigates people to see if they are associated with organizations that intend to be subversive. And if they can find any associations that are questionable, then the people that the committee identifies are marked as subversive people. Communists, communist sympathizers, or something like that, yeah. Right. And so the big thing is that, according to Michaels, is that the the Dice Committee establishes the, the tactic of guilt by association, right, that we'd already talked about with the 1919-1921. It's really just like, you know, do you read the wrong things? Do you belong to the to the wrong kind of organizations. If you do, then that's enough to charge you. Now, of course, the key thing, and this is, again, is going to be true for much of the um, uh, HUAC sort of committee activity as well. The things that it was identifying weren't actually deemed illegal, right? It wasn't as though 
there were criminal prosecutions or anything like that that were occurring. And it wasn't as though there were like criminal penalties imposed on people. Instead, the committee's central tactic was to mark somebody through guilt by association as a subversive and then allow the private market to do its thing. Right. And blacklist right. them. And you don't have to deny- explicitly punish someone to ruin their lives and create uh, an environment of fear around that kind of idea. You just right. say, yeah, yeah, this person's subversive. They're a communist sympathizer. I'm sure your employer will be totally fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so this is and, and the reason you have to talk about the Dice Committee is because it establishes that as the sort of key playbook during these, this witch hunt period. And so it's active from 1938 to 1941. But then, of course, there's some pretty major world events that, that change people's attitudes for a time. Right. So in Andrew Burt's book, which is one of the main texts that we read for this, um, American Hysteria, he cites the the Dias Committee, as you said, as kind of a precursor to McCarthy. But before we get there, you know, as this kind of, you know, little red scare stuff is boiling up, we get world, uh, we get World War Two, and that drastically changes the political environment. Right. I mean, the, the key change in the political environment, at least for a time, is that the United States actually forms an alliance with the Soviet Union to combat fascism. And so during this period, the Red Scare dies down in part because the U.S. government encourages a kind of propaganda campaign to make, you know, Russia a bit more sympathetic than it had been up to this point. Um, And in fact, because Americans might be pretty uncomfortable with being an ally of Russia, given this history that we've been talking about of red scares. Given 20-something years of uh, (laughs) trying to deny people employment for even being associated with the ideas that that were associated with Russia. Um, So one of the things that uh, Michaels points out is like FDR is encouraging Hollywood at this time to produce pro-Russia movies, right, and really change the sentiment towards Russia. And so for a time... The Red Scare kind of this little Red Scare ends or abates and the U.S. has a fairly sort of it's not if not sympathetic, at least more neutral attitude towards the Russia and the Soviet Union. Um, Of course, by the end of World War Two, our relationship with the Soviet Union, uh, it gets significantly worse. Right. Like things change when um, the Hitler Stalin pact is formed. Um, then at the end of World War II, when, uh, you know, the United States and uh, the Soviet Union form an agreement at Yalta regarding sort of like how, you know, power, global power will be sort of uh, exercised by the United States and the Soviet Union. And both are highly suspicious of each other and both see the other as having violated the agreement shortly after. All of that history leads to a renewed, you know, deep paranoia about the the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union's attempts to spread global communism and to ultimately influence politics here in the United States. And then kind of similar to the first Red, red Scare, 
um, after World War One. In 1945, you have the economy struggling again, and you see an uptick in uh, labor organizing. And the, the year 1945 is uh, really important to the story of like the, the origins of like the, the big red scare, the sort of McCarthyism red scare. Like, so that's a year where in the, you know, by 1946, you have massive numbers of strikes, right? So Michael says there are like 5,000 strikes by over 5 million workers in 1946 alone. And these impact all of the key industries that the country runs on, right? Steel, coal, auto, railroads, all of the, the sort of the engines of the economy are um, being ground to a halt by these strikes during this period. The GDP is falling. And just like in the 1919 reds, you know, the, the origins of that red scare, this is a period where as labor is losing um, its leverage and as like price controls are being relaxed and prices are rising and the actual spending power of workers is declining, labor it goes on the offensive again to try to preserve as much as it can for workers that it might have gained during the war period. And the reaction again is for businesses to take these strike activities and to associate them with communism, right? And to charge that this is actually part of a global communist conspiracy and that these strikes are not originating from, you know, merely from, you know, the interests and actions of, of uh, labor here in the U.S., but is actually because they're under the controls of foreign communist influence. And it's at this point that the, uh, you know, the government starts to sort of go back to the old kind of relationship that it had to business and labor, right? You have the uh, Taft-Hartley Act, where Congress is passing kind of anti-union legislation, which denies labor protections to uh, members of labor unions who are communist or who refuse to take vow anti-communist vows, right? And so both the government at this time and business are kind of starting to associate these labor activities with communism again. But but it's not all just sort of labor or business conflict here. In this case, we actually do have some evidence of uh, Soviet and communist subversion and infiltration uh, in the federal government, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so 1945 is a, is a big year, as I said, because this is year A, where the tide's kind of turning against business, against labor, but also because there are actually three major events in this year that demonstrate that there has actually been uh, communist infiltration of the federal government um, in really important areas. Right. So 1945 is the year of the uh, Amerasia affair, where this uh, newspaper, Amerasia, uh, is um, investigated by the FBI, I think secretly and probably illegally. And when they go and they break into their office in New York and they find that there are these, you know, super top secret documents from various agencies within the federal government, the State Department, uh, the Army, um, that are all currently just sitting there in the office. And what this illustrates very clearly is that the Soviet spy efforts had infiltrated a variety of government agencies. It wasn't just like one leak. It was the government was just, you know, hemorrhaging information to the Soviet Union. Um, and in that same year, 
Elizabeth Bentley, um, who comes to be known as the Red Spy Queen, comes out and acknowledges that she's been playing this critical role in the spy network. And the one I think that probably was most alarming to Americans was Igor Gozensko, is a def- defector, um, who basically says, look, this, these spying activities are happening and eventually pushes um, the investigations in the direction of Alan Nunn May, who is a British nuclear physicist who ended up, who was passing information to the Russians about the atom bomb, right? And ultimately we learned that the Soviet Union, right, you know, acquired significant information about the atom bomb and got the atom bomb much earlier than it would have due to these kind of spy activities. Okay, so there's there's real actual kind of threats in the air, uh, evidence of, of spies and infiltration. And again, this is before, you know, what we think of as a full-blown McCarthy Red Scare. Um, but it's clear that there was enough of this fear of communism and association with communism um, in the air that Nixon, interesting, and this was something I had never heard before. It's a really interesting historical tidbit. Wins his first congressional election in California by using pretty crazy red baiting tactics. So so he's running against Jerry Voorhees, who is uh, one of the most respected incumbents. He's held the seat in California forever. He's perceived as an incredibly upstanding, virtuous person. Um, I think what, what was the thing? He had like some really old, tenuous tie to some kind of communist thing, which he had since renounced or something like that. Is that what the background was? I don't know. I don't recall any. I think there was some organization. Anyway, it's not particularly important. But what Nixon does, the strategy he employs is he has people make phone calls to just random folks, right? Or is it mostly high, like, important folks? No, it's random folks. So there's people who make calls to random folks. And and when they pick up, what's the line that they say? I don't remember the exact line, but it's... I I think it's... um, I'm a friend of Jerry Voorhees. Did you know that he's a communist? And I think <laughs> right. that's it. Right. It's something along those lines. It's something as simple and and plain as that. And that's all they say. Um, and Voorhees actually uh, learns of this because one of his relatives receives such a call randomly. Um, and she's like, huh, did you know this was happening? And she eventually goes and like volunteers in one of the Nixon offices for a day just to get a sense of how they operate. And she asks like, hey, what, you going to say anything else to these people? And they're like, nah, this is enough. <laughs> and it works. Um, you know, Voorhees, who would have been the overwhelming favorite, loses uh, pretty convincingly. And Nixon, by the way, later just admits this. And he says, no, of course, of course I had no reason to think that Voorhees was a communist. I was trying to win just sort of openly acknowledges his psychopathy. He says, some, he says it in a nastier manner than that, but yeah, that was the gist. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he accuses uh, the questioner of uh, being naive or something like that, right? It's, it's but anyways, <laughs> so that's just a fascinating historical anecdote. But, it, but it's illustrative, again, of the kind of atmosphere. Um, well, it's... I mean, this is the this is the the thing with the you know nineteen nineteen Red Scare and the the later nineteen thirty eight to nineteen fifty four one. If you want to sort of think of that as all one kind of major event, it starts out with a kind of paranoia about a real event that's occurring in the world, and then turns into a partisan weapon to be wielded for partisan gain, 
with almost, and it eventually sort of loses trace with any genuine real world concerns, right? And uh, so you start out, I mean, if you look at what happens in 1945, anybody who has like institutional responsibilities to the United States has an obligation at that time to be like, okay, this is a problem if the United States is leaking this information to uh, a totalitarian regime like the Soviet Union, and we should do something about it. The problem is that soon after that happens, you get these kinds of partisan, you know, machinations that uh, are just divorced from any sincere concerns about this stuff. And for, from here, you get, uh, again, the House on American Activities uh, Committee becomes more prominent or it's formed as a permanent investigation committee. And then you also get the famous blacklist, which I think is something that most people associate with the Red Scare. Right. So in 46, uh, you, you get the beginning of like the investigations into the film industry and into academia. Right. And you end up um, with the, the, the Hollywood 10 of, you know, famous producers who are brought in, you know, and at, Michael's talks about the irony of this of like, Part of it was they were encouraged by the federal government to make pro-Russian films in part to make the alliance uh, against fascists palatable uh, to the American public, right? And that very, like, the work that they did on behalf of the federal government is then turned against them and, and various producers and people involved in Hollywood are blacklisted merely because they have some very loose associations um, with, you know, communist organizations or have expressed pro-Russian sentiment or uh, because of completely made up fictitious bullshit. Um, and HUAC is really starting to sort of uh, take shape around this period. So once again, we have the return of overt political persecution by the state just as we did uh, in the first Red Scare. There's an important lesson in the, the sort of early phases of Hewak, in particular the way in which it's dealing with the um, the, the Hollywood 10. So the people from Hollywood that, that are forced to come and testify before the committee. Um, and this is something that McCarthy is later going to sort of acknowledge very clearly as kind of the double bind that they're in. So many of the Hollywood uh, 10 wanted to basically responded by saying, look, I'm, I'm not going to answer your questions because to answer your questions would legitimize in, in like, you as an institution with the right to ask me these questions, but really you're just asking me questions about like ideas. I've, you know, I, things I believe, um, and ideas I've expressed in private. And I don't have any obligation to you and you can't legitimately exercise this kind of power because this kind of use of power is repressive and illegitimate. And of course, what McCarthy would later say, and this is a quote from uh, Michael's, a witness's refusal to answer whether or not he's a communist on the ground that his answer would tend to incriminate him is the most positive proof obtainable that the witness is a communist. In other words, if somebody doesn't actually respond and challenge the accusations, 
then they are, in a sense, acknowledging that they're communists, right? That's treated as proof that they have something to hide. So, and, and, and what the Hollywood 10 wanted to do was challenge the idea that the government has a rightful place to ask them about the ideas that they have expressed in private. Um, and so there's really this kind of impossible situation where epistemically to say nothing is to prove your guilt, you know, in the eyes of your audience, but to respond is to legitimize the questioner. Um, and that's the other kind of core thing that, that Huach and various efforts um, to challenge McCarthyism came up against, right? Over and over, we see in the history that there's this kind of double bind where if you are to take the charges, particularly of these kind of wild conspiracies of your opponent seriously, is to render them as legitimate questions in the public mind, right? And you can, this is where I think you can see some analogies. There's interesting analogies to be drawn between what happens with Huach and what could, is happening today. So, you know, the, the equivalent would be if like, what would happen today if Democrats were like, okay, well, President Trump says that there is, uh, you know, all of this voter fraud that's occurred. Well, it's time for him to put up or shut up. Let's form a committee. Let's examine the evidence he has and let's see, right? And we can kind of imagine how that would go. If the Democrats were to do that, there's a sense in which it might kind of legitimize these questions because we're actually forming congressional hearings about them and treating them as though they're legitimate questions, that they might actually right. be true. Yeah, it's always a conundrum, right? Do you confront it and sort of thereby legitimize it or do you try to ignore it? seems like it's just a lose-lose. You just lose either way. And and that's actually, I mean, that, like, that's one of the forces at play, I think, that we have to keep in mind when it comes to the kinds of conspiracy theories that are currently being thrown around, right? You are set up with this kind of double bind where if you try to disprove it, you have treated it as worthy of disproof. And that in itself is to treat it with much more seriousness than it deserves, given the absolute absence of evidence available for the existing conspiracy theories. Um, and this is one of the things that the Democrats learn again and again as they try to combat the spread of uh, this kind of McCarthyism paranoia, right? They, they continuously sort of like try to direct institutions in ways that will compel the American people to recognize that the Democrats are not an arm of the Soviet Union, that, they're, that the conspiracy theories have no merits to them, and as they make those efforts, they end up reinforcing the legitimacy of the questions. Right. I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about here is the role of liberals and the Truman administration in promoting these kinds of instances of political persecution as a way to um, head off conservative criticisms, right? It was meant to be like, look, we'll show you. We'll show you we're not communists. But then it kind of has the opposite effect of, as you say, uh, legitimizing the wild accusations that are that are being made um, by the right. Right. And so the, to be clear, like some of the things the Truman administration does, right, it, it requires people take loyalty oaths to work in the federal government. It, uh, you know, basically allows for uh, investigations into people's um, subversive activities as part of 
uh, like everybody is now subjected to these kind of like loyalty investigations if they are going to have any role in the federal government, right? So there's these massive increases in invasion of privacy that are now just kind of institutionalized and accepted, as you noted, all for the sake of kind of establishing their anti-communist bona fides. But the upshot of that is not that the um, American public then comes to sort of disassociate the Democrats with communism, but rather, again, comes to recognize that it worrying about communist infiltration warrants these kind of interventions in people's lives. Um, yeah. and so it's a little bit different today, but there's still that similar kind of dynamic between the sort of liberal center progressives and conservatives where, you know, conservatives are worried about the radical left and blah, blah, blah. And they associate progressives, Bernie Sanders, uh, AOC with that kind of group, Black Lives Matter. And so folks like more, more moderate Democrats like Biden or um, Klobuchar or, or Buttigieg, all those folks focus on distancing themselves. And they say, look, we're not part of progressives. And, and progressive commentators have often criticized the sort of Democratic center for caring too much about making concessions to Republicans because it's not, it's not like the right stops. They're like, oh, okay, I see that you're not crazy. They're just like, Thank you very much. And by the way, you're a crazy socialist, <laughs> Sanders right. lover, or something like that. Like, but anyways, that's that's maybe a different conversation. But there's a similar kind of dynamic there. Well, there's there's another dynamic that that's also analogous, and and so and maybe this is sort of the next part of the story. So, up to 1946, you have the formation of HUAC, and you have sort of the growing investigations by that committee. By 1948, you have a couple of different things that happen that really lead the Red Scare to take off. And one small bit of this is that the Truman administration, who is, of course, the Democratic administration, engages in exactly these kind of red baiting uh, strategies against Henry Wallace, who was FDR's former vice president. Right. And who lost the vice presidential nomination to FDR or to uh, one of the more progressive presidential candidates in modern history. Right. Yeah. So if you like watch Oliver Stone's um, untold history of the U.S., he has a episode about Henry Wallace where you watch and you're just like, this is kind of the Bernie Sanders of that period. Right. Uh, a lot of similar kind of philosophical positions. Um, one of the key things is that he was you know, very much a dove when it came to foreign policy. He didn't believe that things with the Soviet Union had to escalate. Um, and on top of that, he was of the mind that uh, you could t accept um, support from communists and, you know, communist organizers on his behalf of, of his presidential campaign. And that was ultimately kind of his, the the major sort of, point that the Truman administration then seizes upon, right? It emphasizes that he's allowing and not disassociating himself strongly enough from communists. Um, and they kind of red bait him um, and try to do sort of like occupy this middle space. And of course, they're doing this in order to establish that they're not communists, but it in no way slows down the kind of McCarthyism paranoia that's directed at the Truman administration.
Okay, and so all of this... Maybe we should probably get to McCarthy now, right? Um, but all of this is to point out, as Michaels and Bert argue, McCarthy didn't create these conditions um, that are constitutive of the Red Scare, right? All of this stuff was in the air. All of this is pre-McCarthy. What he does, arguably, is taps into it and take advantage of it in a way that no other political figure had. So where to start with him? So, so maybe we should start with the question, like, who is Joseph McCarthy? Okay, so where where to begin with McCarthy? I guess in some ways, maybe we start with, like, how does McCarthy come to be, you know, in the public spotlight at all? So initially, McCarthy is a World War II vet, um, and uh, he sort of plays up his uh, efforts or contributions in during the war in the press and makes himself out to seem like this kind of heroic figure and claims that he has performed all of these heroic deeds which when investigated by the press all fall apart right so like he injures his leg and he says it's due to his plane crashing but it turns out it was because he was goofing around like it's that level of absurd exaggeration is actually the starting point for McCarthy to become a public figure because he mostly so initially. Went, so he's yeah. he's initially a Wisconsin lawyer, right, and then becomes a doesn't he become a, a judge? senator? Does so he become a, a judge? Maybe. Yes, he does. Yeah, he does. Okay, wow, that's uh, incredible. <laughs> uh, so that in itself is actually I don't know which is more frightening to me: public <laughs> McCarthy or Judge McCarthy. Uh, but. Uh, so he he takes his um, you know this public persona that he builds up based uh, on, on quite a bit of fiction and leverages that into a Senate run where he's elected as the uh, so he's the senator of Wisconsin um, and uh, you know he kind of comes into Washington uh, as a fairly obscure sort of you know first term senator not a lot of you know. Power, influence, highly dislikable guy, um, that... but insanely ambitious, right? And and Bert describes him as being a gambler, and that he actually does a lot of gambling. And his style <laughs> in gambling is to bluff, bluff, then double down and bluff more. An incredibly, just kind of as you said, boastful, ambitious, somewhat reckless, uh, risk taking kind of guy. Right. And he's, and he cultivated some of the right relationships. So in, in particular, when he first arrives, he does actually cultivate a relationship with Hoover, who's head of the uh, FBI at the time. And that becomes an important relationship for him. But he's not well liked. He's rather uncouth, to say the least. We won't get into just how uncouth. Uh, this is not fit to air. Um, but he, he really turns off a lot of people in Washington and isn't, you know, He's, he's on the kind of career trajectory where he's not going to be a significant public, um, you know, figure. And then the um, Alger Hiss case occurs, right? And Alger Hiss is a former advisor to, you know, a high-level advisor to FDR. and to the, he, he was, you know, a highly influential, well-respected figure within the Democratic Party and in sort of the Democratic machine. And this and, is 1948, by the way, yeah. Yeah. So in 1948, Hiss is um, accused by uh, Whitaker Chambers of being a, a communist spy. 
Now, Chambers actually had gone to uh, FDR security advisor as early as 1939 to warn about communist infiltration, but was largely ignored. But by 1948, after all these other things that we've talked about, and, you know, with HUAC and, and the rise in concern about communism, Chambers is suddenly a figure who's now being taken seriously. And Chambers comes in and says, look, this, you know, highly influential um, advisor to FDR is actually a communist spy. He actually accuses one of uh, FDR's other um, high-ranking advisors as well. Right. And, and there's a super theatrical court case that plays out that involves it turns according to Bert on a crucial ornithological detail the fact that Hiss was a bird watcher and saw this rare bird in Baltimore was the crucial bit of evidence that confirms that he was in contact with this this other person and was a spy it's a really like Hollywood kind of script thing right so throughout there's the, also the, something called the pumpkin papers, but we don't need to talk about that. There, there's funny. there's three there's three major things. If you've ever to our audience, if you watch the staircase, which is a uh, you know one of these like what happened, who done it kind of uh, documentaries, it, it's like at the end uh, of the of all of this, Hiss actually produces his own typewriter, which happens to be self incriminating. Right. Uh, at, at the very end, it, it is it in itself is a, an incredibly dramatic, um, you know, episode in American history. Naturally, because of that, it, you know, draws the attention of the American public. Um, and McCarthy sees that the public is paying so much attention to this. And it's and it turns, here. It turns that, out, by the way, his is a spy. I forgot if we said this. R- right. At the very least. Well, this is the thing where it gets messy. Like Dean Acheson and others still continue to deny that his is a spy all the way to the end. Um People, many of the sort of central figures in the Democratic Party f- during this time stand by Hiss all the way to the end, right? He's interesting. Uh, he is not abandoned by the party, um, and they don't end up accepting the claims. He does, it's, it is firmly established that he was lying and that he knew Chambers. So when Chambers is saying that, that they didn't know each other and he wasn't a spy, Hiss denies knowing him at all, and that is conclusively proven by the bird. By the bird, but hey, let's not dwell on this his case. It's crazy. It's wild. So, so how does you know how does McCarthy figure in here? Right. So, so I mean, the reason that the wild and craziness is important is it's just it is something that really grabs the attention of the American public, and it's here that McCarthy sees an opportunity to really move into the spotlight. So, in 1950, um, McCarthy goes to the town of Wheeling, West Virginia, um, gives a speech to the Women's Republican Club. Uh, in Ohio County and uh, gives this now famous talk on where he claims that he knows the the exact number and initially says 205 members of the State Department who are definitively uh, Soviet spies. Okay, and so that that is amazing, right? Because he has literally no evidence and he says 205. From a historical standpoint, from the standpoint of getting attention, it's kind of brilliant, right? Because if you make if you <laughs> give this specific figure, you're like, holy shit, right? This must, person must must have really great evidence, exhaustive right. detail. Right. I mean, that's one of this is one of those like epistemic principles that's that's interesting, right? The more specific a claim is, the more specific the evidence must be, right? And so then the audience goes, oh, well, this person must have very very specific evidence. 
in order to uh, know this precise number. Unfortunately, uh, if that was so precise, you'd expect that it would remain consistent. But uh, it changes numerous times um, in a very short period of time. So like McCarthy flies, uh, he goes on a sort of national speaking tour. He goes and gives a talk at Salt Lake City. And by that time, the number has gone from 205 to 57, according to Michaels. Um, there's another uh, place where a reporter like uh, says that it was actually 194 that McCarthy told him. Ultimately, we know now McCarthy didn't have any evidence. Um, McCarthy, in fact, had to eventually go before Herbert Hoover and uh, William Randolph Hearst, two allies of his, and confess that he just had nothing, right? That this was an entirely fictitious thing that he made up um, and that he needed their help to have some evidence. Um, but of course... Uh, the fact that he, he gives these specific numbers and it seems like it must be backed by such compelling evidence um, leads people to believe him. And in part, this is where the, the question of what is the responsibility of journalists in all of this, right? Because McCarthy makes this wild claim, but nobody ever requires any proof of any kind to repeat that claim. And the, and the press laps it up, right? Like, this is sensational stuff. And, and here's where the parallels to Trump are pretty irresistible, right? You have someone who's making crazy claims, is changing the story, so it's inconsistent. The media loves it, obviously, because it's, uh, you know, kind of sensational. And while he's, I mean, th- this part's interesting, right? While he's not well-liked within his party, as you said, his garnering public support for this issue, this concern about communist infiltration helps Republicans. Right. And so they, you know, they don't, they kind of stand, you know, they, they don't openly denounce him. Um, they, you know, they don't praise him necessarily either. Um, well, but they it's let helpful him, for them. They let him, and ultimately what they let him do is campaign on their behalves. And uh, he helps lots of Republicans uh, get elected like the people that he campaigns on behalf of, right? They, they at least embrace him in that way. Um, and, and the parallel there is like super, super strong, right? right? We, we kept wondering and asking, like, wh- it's clear that the, you know, the mainstream of the Republican Party is not Trumpian. <laughs> they they right. don't even like the same kind of things, but they never, they never opposed him because they were useful, or Trump was useful for them winning elections, and also he was passing the policy that they want. It was just useful for them. So that just never happened until kind of now after he's already lost. But anyways, right. Well, this is the, this is going to be the question at the end is like, how much is the parallels between the present moment and the downfall of McCarthy really analogous? Um, so, all right. So that's sort of who McCarthy is and how he rises to prominence. He's a bullshitter who really seeks public attention um, and is willing to say anything to get it. And it happens to be rather useful because he's willing to say anything to get it. Because, you know, the obvious question is like, why is this person, why why do we call it McCarthyism as opposed to any of these other people, given that he was so late to the game? Um, right. And, and the answer is just kind of the outsized role due to the wild and outsized accusations that he was willing to make, which eventually leads the Democrats to push back. Um, and the Democrats um, form a committee known as the Tidings Committee, 
where basically it's put up or shut up time for McCarthy. And they're basically like, all right, well, if you have this evidence that all these people uh, in the State Department are communists, we, we need to know. So you better prove it. Who are they? And what is your evidence for this? Um, and of course, at this time, McCarthy doesn't have anybody, right? So uh, he is grasping at straws. Eventually, he goes to Hoover um, and to Hearst. And they have tried to supply him with whatever sort of information they can to help him. I'm pretty sure it's in um, Dark Days in the Newsroom by Edward Alwood. He explains that um, Hearst actually supplies uh, McCarthy with like a team of journalists who are at least like skilled in doing like, you know, investigatory work to try to like help him deal with the tidings committee. And eventually... Being the bluffer that he is, he says that he's gonna he's gonna um, out the top Soviet spy, the person who is sort of behind all of the Soviet machinations in the United States. And so, who does he identify? Well, he identifies Owen Lattimore, who's basically a Chinese policy ex- expert. That isn't uh, he an academic, actually? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who's whose expertise is in? China policy. And he's just written a bunch on um, the inevitability of communist control of China. And this, of course, this is another one of those historical events that's important. During the this late period, you know, the Truman administration is is uh, has sent George Marshall over to China and is trying to support various anti-communist, you know, political organizing within China, sends them a shitload of money, you know, a few billion dollars. Um, and Lattimore, as well as Marshall and lots of other experts, recognizes that no matter how much money the United States sends, communist control of China is inevitable. Uh, and it's really just throwing bad money after worse by um, like trying, spending all of the, these U.S. resources to try to change the outcome. It's not going to happen. Which proves correct, of course. Of course, yeah. And so that's really the the sin that... Uh, that um, McCarthy latches onto to try to prove Lattimore's communist, uh, you know, that, that Lattimore is a communist and is an agent of the Soviet Union. By the end of the Tidings Committee, the Tidings Committee report makes it clear they actually just believe Lattimore, right? So there's says which McCarthy fails here, but it somehow doesn't actually kind of like Trump. He's kind of Teflon in this period where it just doesn't stick. Yeah, it it doesn't matter. Right. Like yeah. his reputation doesn't falter as as a result of really just kind of floundering in these proceedings. Right. And so there's a there's a figure um, by 1950. He's quite popular. He has a high approval rating. I think the majority of people approve of him. And 70 percent of the country favor criminalizing membership in the Communist Party. Right. And so the general attitude, the anti-communist attitude at this time is like peaking and people, regardless of like how McCarthy does, are supporting him. And in large part, just because kind of like today, there is enough agreement in ideas with this person that they don't really give a shit about the evidence or reality. And also like today, the one leading the charge doesn't really care about the ideas either. Right. It's, it's right. strictly a publicity and power grab. Right. I guess the other the other sort of major historical event event to note is that, you know, the U.S. Uh, 
enters the Korean War in 1950. So there's this other thing that's going on that bolsters McCarthy. And so conditions around 1950, 1951 are highly favorable to McCarthy. And he just continues to grow in popularity, despite not being able to produce evidence, despite, you know, kind of being embarrassed in uh, the various tidings committee sessions. Nothing he does really like sticks to him and matters and makes a difference in the mind of the American public. Um, and he's emboldened by this and you know, like continues to ramp up the conspiracy theories and rhetoric, right? So eventually he goes on to charge that George Marshall, who, as we mentioned, was sent over to China, is a communist. And George Marshall becomes one of the people that McCarthy fixates on as a communist agent. And George Marshall is a member of the military, obviously a highly respected individual. And so this this sort of marks this, the beginning of his real downfall. Right. And I mean, to, this is the other case where this is the, the place where the actual relationship to um, the Republican Party starts to, to matter. Right. So George Marshall was actually the boss of Eisenhower. Right. Who becomes the Republican president, in part riding the wave of anti-communism that McCarthy is um, helping to foster. Uh, and, you know, the Republican administration, uh, you know, the, the Eisenhower administration isn't exactly happy about, uh, you know, George Marshall, a World War II war hero who was, again, Eisenhower's boss, um, being sort of raked over the coals in this way. So it starts to become it, it. It's the case that like the Eisenhower administration starts to clearly develop a strong disdain for McCarthy, and this is one of the critical. This is back to our question of like how analogous is the situation with today. This is one of the sort of possibly the key differences, right? Like McCarthy started to attack his own party and people who had strong relations to his party in ways that. Uh, made it very difficult for the center of the power of the party to accept. This is the other key thing. Uh, so, so McCarthy's attacking George Marshall. Um, and then eventually, due to this wave of anti-communism, Republicans really come to control everything, right? So Eisenhower's elected. The Democrats don't have a majority anywhere, there's a sense in which the government is now controlled by the Republican Party. And, of course, McCarthy's shtick this whole time is to claim that the government has been infiltrated by communists and are subject to communist control. Okay, so there's the seeds of self-destruction there. Um, <laughs> as right. your own party constitutes the majority of the government... And your claim is that it is controlled by communists that might set the stage for conflict. <laughs> right. And so it was perfectly fine with the Republican Party when, when uh, you know, McCarthy's going on TV accusing the Truman administration to be communist. But now he's doing this, you know, he's directing this sort of uh, these charges towards, you know, members of the Eisenhower administration and other government institutions that are ultimately under the control of the Republican Party. And where things really sort of um, reach a breaking point for McCarthy is when he goes after the army. Now, 
why he goes after the army is itself a kind of another one of these incredible, sensational, you know, uh, tabloid sort of appropriate things. But what really matters is the fact that he does, right? So McCarthy's investigating the army and decides that the army has uh, been infiltrated by communists. I'm pretty sure that the evidence he had is he ha- found a dentist who had ties to communism. Um, yeah, man. And uh, that was going to what, take what do you think, down... What do you think they do to you when they, when they put you under to, to perform some dental surgery? They also put on communist propaganda that infiltrates your subconscious. Oh, shit. I, uh, I assume anyways. That's why I have, yeah, that's why yeah, I'm so no. afraid of dentists. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so he um, eventually, this of course leads to and really, it's sort of the lead up to this. I mean, the the final sort of showdown for McCarthy is when McCarthy then has this sort of um, nationally televised, sort of highly viewed, um, you know, month, many month long sort of encounter with the army where they're basically there are these special um, committee meetings where they're going back and forth and. There's this uh, famous uh, moment where uh, McCarthy charges one of the uh, young men who worked for the law firm of the lawyer. Where they they agreed ahead of time before the case that McCarthy would not bring him up. Right. In in exchange for them not bringing up uh, another personal tie of McCarthy's. Yeah. So, well, or of McCarthy's associates. Yeah. 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 But McCarthy brings it up anyways and starts attacking him. And basically, the, this young man had been a member of an organization, you know, when he was an undergraduate. And uh, the, um, the the lawyer for the army basically sort of just comes back to him and says, have you no decency, sir? And it's sort of this famous moment where in that moment, uh the American public comes to recognize the maliciousness of McCarthy, right? And sort of the fact that he really just was devoid of sympathy or empathy for anybody and was looking to, um, you know, character assassinate people really with complete disregard for the impact that that would have on people's lives. And the army lawyer really sort of crystallized how the American public felt and were receiving McCarthy. And this really turns the tide against him. Right. And so so after this, his public approval rating plummets, his party turns on him and he self-destructs. Right. And and one thing to be clear about is it's not like it was just this moment by itself. This was kind of like the culmination of it. But the Republican Party um, itself had members who were starting to go on TV. So Ralph Flanders of uh, Vermont, Republican, goes on TV, basically just, you know, making fun of McCarthy and trying to sort of demonstrate or convey to the American public what a clown he was. Um, the Eisenhower administration kind of set up, set the gears in motion with the army where he wanted to give McCarthy enough rope to hang himself and like really kind of knew how this was going to play out. Edward R. Murrow 
uh, does the long expose on McCarthy. There were a lot of different public institutions that came together to try to work against McCarthy at this time. Okay, and and now the questions about the present situation are uh, irresistible, right? And just to be clear, when I say he self-destructs, he shortly thereafter, he literally drinks himself to death, age of 48, dies right. of inflammation of the liver. Um, okay, so whew, that's a lot of history, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, was it too much? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> that's all right. Um, but okay, so what we were particularly interested in is the genesis, but also the ends of these periods. And so why don't we start with the end of it? And as, as you just said, one thing that was critical to this was that there were trusted institutions. So Edward R. Murrow is a you know trusted journalist at the time, highly respected, the army itself, and then also uh, you know other members of the Republican Party turning on McCarthy. Including the, the, yeah, including sure. the most popular member of the Republican Party, Eisenhower, who the highest public approval rating of any public figure. Okay. Um, and so you take that structure and you say crap. <laughs> like <laughs> that that same Okay, so then you ask you the first question is like are there trusted institutions that could do this today with respect to Trump and Trump's claims of voter fraud now we as we said parallel to the first red scare is that the courts have kind of held up they performed their judicial duties um but that hasn't seemed to matter with respect to public opinion um maybe the army if trump went after the army that would that could be a thing but that hasn't happened Right. Um, and then also, as we said, like, you know, maybe the Republican Party is starting to oppose him now. But boy, it took a long time. Um, and even now, it's quite weak. Right. I mean, so at the same time, it took the Republican Party a long time to go after McCarthy. Uh, right. Effectively the same amount of time, but for okay, years. So it's not so much the time, right? So I guess the way you'd put it, yeah. what's more concerning about today is like, what was at stake then? Well, a lot of people's lives and careers, um, you know, we're talking about conspiracy theories and political persecution and the ruining of individuals. But today we're like, it's not so much the the timing of it, but like we're talking about like just overturning a democratic election, right? Which democracy is a, itself. It's, yeah, it's a bit further down the road. <laughs> so I think there are two. Yeah, I mean, actually, the so thing where, where do we the, start with this? <laughs> well, okay, so. As you noted, all right, that there are a few cases where there are public institutions that still might have the trust of. And this is the thing about the polarization of the current moment. There are institutions that are trusted. It's just that they're not trusted. That usually there's the kind of they're bifurcated and they're trusted by 50% or half of the population, right? So the, you know, liberals and conservatives have very different sets of trusted institutions, like the media. So I guess one question is, in theory, is Fox News trusted enough by conservatives such that it has the kind of standing with conservatives that Murrow had at the time? Like that. I mean, so, and so this is the, um, the concerning thing, right, is that possibly no. You would have thought yes, but... And surely for some, the answer is yes. And also it depends on the particular host on Fox News that you're talking about, right? Because there's different opinion segments and some of them are more forceful about saying that there is no 
election fraud than others. Some of them right. are still denying that. Right. Um, but many of the hosts who were trusted, who who have repudiated Trump's claims, are now losing viewers because of that. Right. So so that is a a concern. It's also a concern if you're like, well, Fox News will help us out here <laughs> in the first place, right? Right. Well, this is the, the there's a sense in which uh, the, the fundamental difference is that you didn't have politically motivated driven media, right? You you had some public trusted media that wasn't viewed by the American public as having taken a side and as having its own kind of political agenda, right? So that's, you could have an Edward R. Murrow because of that. Whereas today, um, you have politically driven media, uh, and those are, that's really the only media that's actually trusted by the majority of conservatives. And so you have a basic incentive problem where if that media is motivated primarily towards achieving certain political outcomes, then there's a lot less hope that they would intervene even if they had the standing with the public to do so. So that's concern one. Okay, so maybe we can't bank on any particular media uh, having standing and motive. Then there are other public institutions. As you said, the Supreme Court has, and and the courts, the judicial um, branch of government in general has sided against Trump anytime there have been these kinds of... um, uh, cases that they've they've heard, though there are there are different ways in which you can say they've sided against them, right? Like there, it's one thing to just like rule against, yeah. and it's an, and it's another thing to um, call out the sort of irresponsibility of what's happening, right, and the absurdity of what's happening. So, like in the most re- recent case that I can remember hearing about. The court basically ruled against uh, Trump's lawyers on the grounds that who they were suing was just the wrong party. They didn't have uh, they they didn't have standing because they they weren't like the parties that would be either victim or like they didn't. Is, is this the case of like Texas suing the other states for their election results? Because uh, I think something like that happened there. Right. I think it's happened in a few cases, yeah. and and. The reality is, is that's a different kind of rejection of the the Trump line than to the kind of thing that McCarthy was subjected to. Like McCarthy was subjected to a kind of public undressing where he was exposed as an indecent person and a fraud. Right. And merely people saying no to McCarthy, even if they said it publicly, wasn't sufficient to achieve that. And while the judicial and, and one of the worries is like. And one of the problems is that's not really the judicial branch's role, right? It's meant to no, be. I mean, a... I mean, really, the the response from the Supreme Court and the judicial branch should be deeply embarrassing, right? The way they responded to say that you have not made an actual accusation, which is what they said in a lot of these cases, should be deeply embarrassing. The but the part of the thing is like, does the average person like how do they conceive of the Supreme Court? Do they really care? I mean, I think most people see the Supreme Court as a tool of the parties, which is right confused I mean, there's well, a kernel of well, truth to it but it's it's not quite right it's what um, it's becoming uh well yeah even then it will disappoint i think partisans but 
um yeah like who cares right i, I think the for a lot of trump support it's just like the courts failed us <laughs> right but they, there's also just not the the opportunity for the kind of personalized conflict there's a sense in which what was key, key to the american public really turning against mccarthy was the personalized public nature of the undressing before the public um and you need the institutions you need whatever these the trusted institutions are today to have a similar kind of you need to have the kind of psychological impact i think the way things need to play out needs to be more kind of direct right and the court cases are not direct enough to to have that sort of psychological impact okay as you noted the army i think still has standing with conservatives more than uh you know the Trump administration. But as you've noted, there's not really a conflict there, right? There's not. No. Here's one, maybe just analogy. I haven't fully thought this through, but what do you think about this? The sense I get, and obviously my, you know, my knowledge is incomplete here. The way we presented McCarthy is as capitalizing on this fear, drumming up fear and then capitalizing it. And that causes him to be popular. Yep. Um, it's not clear that he develops well while he is does have a kind of uh you know positive approval rating from a majority of Americans does he develop the same kind of cult of personality that Trump has because you you could say that Trump kind of started that same way right he drummed up fears and preyed on them and that launched him to popularity but now does anyone care about those things or does he at this point get to just decide what what should matter to his followers. Like, I, I worry that it's transcended issues and fear. And now it's just cult of personality. Right. Hard to assess in the case of McCarthy, I think given our information, but it's hard to imagine that same, like what would the public undressing be? <laughs> right. Like, well, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder too, how much it just depends on the sort of like, the heights of institutional power that McCarthy achieved, right? So like the, the horrifying, um, you know, um, alternate universe is one where Eisenhower doesn't like figure out how to get the army involved in a way that undermines McCarthy. And eventually McCarthy becomes elected president. Um, you know, you, you can imagine just the power of that office in the, you know, having the bully pulpit available to you um, allows you to develop a kind of cult of personality that can't be penetrated. Um, So it's very hard to assess, you know, how much it turns on, you know, just the kind of institutional roles that they uh, ended up playing. I think that's right. I think we, we mentioned this earlier, but one way in which the current situation seems different is like the degree of, I, I, I want to call it gaslighting or, or it's not even paranoia. It's, it's more brazen, right? So as we've kind of said, like there, there was some, some elements of true, there were, there were some threats of Soviet and communist infiltration in 
the U.S. government. Yep. No threat of revolution, no threat of taking over or anything like that, but actual infiltration, which could reasonably cause people to become quite alarmed. Yep. In the current case of, you know, <laughs> accusations voter of voter fraud, <laughs> yeah. not only is there no evidence, but when we have evidence, we have positive evidence of no voter fraud, and then Trump and and Trump supporters saying, no, it is there. Trust us. Don't believe your eyes, right? Like this, this is where it gets to be like, it seems like a little bit more epistemically deranged and extreme than the, what the typical McCarthy supporter would have, um, the state they would have been in, in the fifties. Right. I mean, right. So the, the fundamental difference is that McCarthyism is an exaggeration of an existing threat in reality. Um, you know, and, and there's a sense of which, I mean, McCarthyism was deranged in terms of the specific claims made in the same way, right? That they were absolute utter fictions and he had no, no need for evidence. And the media sort of empowered McCarthy by not interrogating his claims in any real way. Um, so in terms of like the specific claims, there were fictions, but there was an underlying reality. There was an underlying threat that, at the very least, was there to be exaggerated. Here, there isn't that. And also, the scope of the ac- accusation is so much grander. I don't know. There could be spies, right? I'm sure there are spies, right? And it would be hard to know. So it's something that you can kind of speculate about. But in this case, we're talking about tens of thousands of fraudulent votes. Like, that's such a, a mass conspiracy like or out of the gate right the priors for that accusation have to be much lower so the, the interesting thing here is partly that the there's a sense in which there's a kind of inversion of the epistemic principles that are exploited by mccarthy and trump so as we noted mccarthy starts out the key thing it's 205 right it's highly highly specific claim right. which and what gives it uh, the air of credibility is the fact that it's so highly specific that who would make that up, right? Who would pick a specific number like that unless they had specific evidence that really could be linked to people? And so McCarthy uses specificity as a um, as the grounds for credibility. Trump does the opposite, right? Trump uses vagueness. Right. And always makes his charges so opaque that uh, they're inscrutable and uh, therefore they are irrefutable. Right. Because they're they're not specific enough. Um, They don't have the natural air of credibility to them. Right. As you say, like the priors for Trump's claims are are incredibly low, given the scope of what he's charging. And yet, because they're so vague, uh, they there's a sense in which they're disprovable in that, as you know, uh, overwhelming evidence is that it doesn't exist. Uh, and also, in some sense, this is where the other epistemic principles come into play, where if something has incredibly low priors and you don't have any positive evidence and you can't find any positive evidence, well, that's as good a refutation as you can hope for. But then... It's the complexity of that kind of inferential practice 
that the American public isn't sensitive to that allows Trump to, you know, not be sort of laughed out of the room when he makes these charges. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, like the, the epistemic principles, what we see in each case is uh, exploitation of certain kinds of um, epistemic practices that people have, but they're very different. Yeah. Does that, I guess one question is, does that make a difference to whether or not we can be hopeful that Trump, that, that the, the Trump supporters could be persuaded in the way that McCarthy's supporters were persuaded? I don't know. I, I think it's con- right. It suggests that the, the epistemic situation is worse. And so it, it makes me wonder, as we've been, I've been wondering all along, are the underlying factors different? Many of them are the same, but is the political saturation driven polarization stronger and more crucial to people's identities in a way that makes folks just immune to countervailing evidence. It's harder to imagine, you know, a similar kind of end (laughs) to this situation. I can see that, but at the same time, I can, I can also imagine if you were to ask a leftist in 1952, whether they could imagine uh, conservatives sort of like coming to grips with reality, seeming equally unlikely in part due to identity based sort of polarization. Um, I mean, as, as you noted, like 70% of the American public was in favor of criminalizing membership in the communist party, right? Like, just well, I mean, so here's, a, here's an interesting question now, though, like, and again, this is something that's come up. Polarization, we typically think of it as partisan polarization. But now it's less clear. There's at least a couple of groups on the right. Is it partisan? Is it is it um, adherence to the Republican Party? Or is it adherence to the president? Um, because a lot of prominent, somewhat popular Republican figures who have criticized Trump have had their careers ended, cast aside. And this is part the part of the explanation why of why the Republican Party has not been more oppositional to Trump, because they fear the consequences. Um, so I don't know that that could be a potential difference, right? For McCarthy, you did have opposition from the party, and even if there was strong partisan polarization, the commitment was to the party, and so you could ditch McCarthy and still maintain your identity. But at least for a lot of people, that seems less possible now. Right. Again, well, this so is speculative, but yeah, there's concerns here. I mean, I, I'm reminded of uh, one of the quotes um, in Michael's. I don't actually remember who who uh, the quote is attributed to, um, but it's basically the one. It might have been Adlai Stevenson in his campaign, or it was around the time anyway, that uh, said, like, the Republican Party is half Eisenhower and half McCarthy, right? In other words, there was half of the the party was actually committed to McCarthy as a kind of political representative that at least suggested that it was kind of a cult of personality. It's probably right that uh, didn't achieve the, the level that Trump has. And again, it's sort of, Imagine the the horrifying alternate universe where McCarthy becomes president. Maybe it would have, right? And it might just be, yeah, a function of the heights that McCarthy reached. At the same time, 
it does seem like, you know, even now in the last couple of days, the Republican Party is trying to do the kind of personalized public undressing that McCarthy experienced, right? The the leaking of private phone calls are meant, I would imagine, to be to create that kind of political moment for Trump. So in some ways, it really just seems like the answer to this question turns on, at least in part, how does the public receive these uh, this tape of Trump basically insisting that the Georgia Secretary of State find votes? And it's really not obvious which way that will go. I no, mean, you take it. It's a, it's a calculated risk by the Republican Party. I mean, we've been talking about you know early on when we were starting this series. How how do we get people back into the epistemic fold? Right? How do we get people back in the fold? How how do you put an end to a situation of epistemic derangement? But it really could just be the Republican Party is asking how can how can we get people back into our fold as opposed right. to the Trump fold? Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think you're right that these. <laughs> The coming days and weeks will be pretty telling, I think, for for how this goes. But I mean, I don't know. There's, it seems like the the damage to the political culture is lasting. Yeah, but I I don't know. Now, one <laughs> thing I have to say that this history brings out. On the one hand, it's comforting in that we've gone through. I mean, so. <laughs> We talked about what it was eighteen seventy four through nineteen fifty four, something like um, that. I was like seventy six, but yeah, seventy six. Sorry, eighteen seventy six. And we identified like four Red Scare periods. Yeah, something like that. So on the one hand, we're like, okay, that's not new. Sort of. Uh, I mean, the the present situation, right? The Red Scare is kind of anti communist, anti leftist hysteria. The present situation, there's it's partly that, right? It's fueled a little bit by that. Like that's kind of in the background. It's, that's obviously not necessarily the focus. Um, but like, so like, okay, we've been through situations of political hysteria before. On the other hand, it's like, that's just, that is, that just is part of the American political culture. That's just always there. It's just always there for someone to tap into when it's convenient. Obviously it's, it's helped by certain either economic forces or international forces that make the, uh, concerns more real in the present situation as, as far as the hysteria is anti-leftist just the mere fact of like the relative success of progressives and and like relative success minor success of progressives in like the bernie sanders campaign is enough to trigger hysteria yeah <laughs> so on the one hand you're like well, maybe we won't have an end to democracy. Maybe, you know, this isn't that new in that respect and, and things will kind of turn back to sanity. But like, it's not a la- it's not progress. It's it's a temporary of, you know, uh, avoiding of the ultimate disaster. <laughs> but the underlying threats are just there. Right. Well, and well, the th- yeah, yeah. And the underlying threats it's not even though the, it's not that the 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 fact that that threat is there, but it's that that is a barrier that can be put up whenever the sort of mood of the country is uh, heading towards um, progressive ideas, right? And and that's actually something we didn't talk about in any detail. I mean, to be honest, audience, I had many more hours of history, but Toby uh, 
well, didn't want didn't want me to to cover all of it. We didn't want uh, more than two hours of that history in one episode. <laughs> but one one of the things that we we didn't actually get into was the fact that the Truman administration, Truman's you know uh, second term was highly unexpected, and he kind of rode into office running on a uh, on the fair deal, right? Which is like an extension of the um, the New Deal extending uh, the sort of uh, workers' rights and labor rights. And on top of that, more even, you know, bigger, got sort of nationalized healthcare program. Um, and it was actually in the basis of those ideas that, that Truman ran and ended up winning this surprising re-election. Um, and on the one hand, it was like the cultural tide was pushing in the direction of progressive ideas. And then the Red Scare that arose out of that or in response to that partly was sufficient to put up a barrier to prevent that momentum from actually moving forward. And I think that's, if there's a depressing thing to take away from, from this, it's that it's not just that there's these moments of epistemic derangement and paranoia, but that there is this tool that is available to, to, you know, prevent progressive uh, ideas from really gaining a foothold. Um, and uh, before I forget, I have to mention the quote. This came up in uh, the Burt book um, from the French existentialist philosopher, very influential Jean-Paul Sartre, who, uh, in commenting on the McCarthy era Red Scare, said, "I don't have the exact quote, but like the thing that is interesting or different about America is that." There are no communists in America. There are some. That's not literally true. But what's interesting is that there aren't comparable red scares going on in Europe, where there the Communist Party is much stronger and has many more members relative to the population than it does right. in the United States. Which is just another illustration of the fact that like this kind of aversion <laughs> to progressive or leftist ideas is like super strong and it's just always there. And again, can can be capitalized on when the, when the conditions are ripe but so in the end you're comforted right you feel better having done this exercise oddly yeah still (laughs) (laughs) uh i don't know it it to me is at least comforting to know that we i mean putting the disanalogies aside it's comforting for me to know that the psychological transformations that needed to occur in order to like escape the kind of epistemic derangement that really peaked during McCarthyism could actually happen. I think that's the thing that actually makes me comfort is just the fact that that kind of psychological transformation is genuinely possible in, uh, you know, a, on a large scale. Um, because I think the thing that it, the, the real despair that the present epistemic derangement uh, has produced in both of us is the fact that there's a sense that there's no, it's in, it's like inconceivable that that kind of psychological transformation could actually happen. Right. And then we're kind of just stuck. Um, but I think that at least the psychological factors and forces, um, the history shows that we are more malleable 
than we would have thought. Because I can imagine that somebody in 1952 thinking the exact same thing. Um, that's not. It's not to say that it's going to happen. To the point of malleability, though. I mean, and this is where I think it's frightening. And, and we talked about this the other day. How this goes seems like it's a large, in a large part, going to be a function of, I think, how right-wing media outlets, which direction they decide to go. Yep. Because if they want to just go all in and push the Trump angle and and uh, continue to create discontent and, you know all kinds of things to be terrified about, which have no basis in reality. I think they have the opportunity to do that (laughs) if they want to. Yeah. And they could get rich doing it. I think that's right. The other thing. In which case it's hard to, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not going to draw that conclusion. It's too depressing. (laughs) All I said is that it's psychologically possible. There's a psychological psychological possible. It's in the space of psychological possibility that it's not get a little bit better. It's not probable. It's not uh, likely. It's not um, the, the evidence doesn't support it. It's just that that is a psychological possibility. And what gives me comfort is until I like thought more about the history, I couldn't even get into the space of mind where I could even see the psychological possibility of it. I mean, look, maybe the sadly optimistic view is something like, Look, these things do fade. Attention spans or attention shifts to other things. Other events come up, perhaps, or the um, conditions that fuel these kinds of hysterias kind of fall away. And so maybe we we do get a kind of in the coming years a short term return to normalcy. But again, that's not to say there's any lasting progress. And you you would expect we're 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 continuously vulnerable to the same kind of thing happening. It seems like, yeah. You keep trying to depress me, but I'm. <laughs> you can't, can't do it. You are. T- it's you know your 2021 resolution. You know, I think people, listeners of this podcast, think of you as the kind of like dour one, the hard luck, like depressed one. Yeah, yeah, that seems right. You're, you're gonna you're gonna turn that around in 2021, right? You're it's uh, Mary Whoa. Michael. I don't want to promise. No, no, I'm not promising that. <laughs> Just this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we should probably call it there. Thanks, everyone, for for listening this long. If you have, you know, remember to uh, leave a comment or, or, or leave us a five-star rating in whatever podcast service you listen to this. I, so here's here's how I will uh, continue my reversal of role. Normally, I say at this point, okay. like, why would anybody have listened this long? What I will say is if you have listened this long and you haven't given us a five-star rating, like either you like just like to be irritated or you I don't understand how you don't have the time because you listened this long. <laughs> that's fair. That's that's a great point. And uh, so we're, we're still going to continue on this theme. I think next time our plan that you know, may change, but our, our plan is to talk about um, strong men and just sort of this general. um phenomenon and other international contexts yeah i mean in some ways it's like so we've studied all of the the history of uh these kind of moments of hysteria and political authoritarianism and demagoguery in the context of the u.s but of course uh there are lots of other places in the world that are highly instructive and we'll look to those next um 
and try to find reasons to not be so depressed. And then after Widow that, we'll talk about puppies and kittens <laughs> as a palate cleanser. <laughs> All right. Sounds see you good. next time. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.